I am Laura Coates, and welcome to CNN Tonight. Much more to come on this first historic day, a historic confirmation hearing for the first black woman nominated to the United States Supreme Court. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is awaiting a grilling from senators on the Judiciary Committee starting tomorrow. We got a couple of clues today of what's really to come. In fact, maybe how Republicans on the panel will test the judge on her record. And perhaps more importantly, how will she respond? But first to the breaking news. The nonstop bombardment of major Ukrainian cities on day 26 of the Russian invasion. New large explosions in Kyiv today as Russian forces attempt to encircle the capital. At least eight more people murdered this time in a strike on a shopping center earlier today. A kindergarten and nearby apartment buildings also destroyed. The Pentagon says the Russians are quote-unquote frustrated that their advances have been stalled by stiff Ukrainian resistance, and that's why the Russian military is now stepping up its missile attack on civilian areas. Like this, the key port city of Mariupol, where bombs are now falling, quote, every 10 minutes, unquote according to one officer. And this is what President Zelensky said about the onslaught. Hardworking, honest city of Mariupol, which is being destroyed by the occupiers and being reduced to ashes, but it will survive. Reduced to ashes, but it will survive. Now, meanwhile, President Biden spoke about Russia's escalating brutality with key European leaders today, all this ahead of his trip to the NATO summit later this week. And we've got a team of correspondents standing by in the region and also at the White House. We begin in Lviv with Ben Wiedemann. Ben, I'm glad that you're here. We're seeing satellite images of Russian tanks and artillery positions around Mariupol. And of course, at the same time, we're looking at this map and satellite imagery. The devastation there is visible from those same satellites. As you see, apartment buildings are on fire. So what is the latest right now, Ben, on the bombardment there? Well, basically what's going on in Mariupol, Laura, is a medieval siege fought with modern uh, weapons. We are hearing, for instance, that people are running out of food. There is no electricity. There is no gas. Uh, people are basically melting water uh, because there's no running water available. Uh, so the situation is, is, is dire. And uh, this really underscores uh, how far the Russians will go to try to gain uh, control of this city. But it's coming at a very uh, high cost, it would seem. There was an interesting incident uh, today where a pro Kremlin tabloid, uh, quoting the Russian Ministry of Defense, said that the death toll so far from this war among Russian forces is 9,861. Most recently, the U.S. government was saying, estimating the casualty, the fatalities among Russian forces were around 7,000. This is a stunning number, but strangely enough, this article that appeared online disappeared very quickly afterwards uh, when these numbers came out. But this certainly indicates uh, that the Russian military is paying a very high price for this bloody assault. And Laura? of course, as you're talking about it, Ben, I would imagine to have those numbers public 
would really undermine a propaganda campaign being run inside of Russia right now to suggest that they are having the advantage and that they are justified in what they're calling a security operation. And we see those numbers, not to mention the casualties of civilians in Ukraine as well. Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much for your coverage. And there are two points, as you know, out of the Pentagon today. One, that the Russians have so far failed to achieve much of what they wanted to do on the ground. We just heard about that. And then there's this. We certainly see clear evidence that Russian forces are committing war crimes. And we are helping uh, with the collecting of evidence of that. But there's investigative processes that are going to go on, and we're going to let that happen. Uh, We're going to contribute to that investigative process. As for what would come out of that, uh, that's not a decision that the Pentagon leadership would make. You know, when you see buildings in neighborhoods of Mariupol, they're bearing the scars of destruction. I mean, look at that imagery right there. I mean, keep in mind, when you're looking at this, this was a thriving community a month ago. And when you see attacks like the strikes on the mall in Kiev, me and Ben were just speaking about, you begin to understand how the idea of holding Russians to this so-called stalemate only increases the humanitarian pain. My next guest, he knows that link very well. As the former top general for European Command, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. General, I'm very glad you're here to help break this all down. And I, I want to begin with that word stalemate, because I think a lot of people hear that and they don't necessarily know what it truly means. We know the colloquial term, but what does that mean to have a stalemate? You see the destruction continues to go on. It does not mean they're going to retreat in any way. Is that right? Not necessarily, uh, Laura, but it could. Here's what we're talking about. The Russians were conducting offensive operations. They attempted to do things very quickly along five avenues of approach. They were stalled in each one of them. That means their offensive operations came to a halt. And it was for a variety of reasons. They ran into some very stiff resistance on the part of the Ukrainian army and the territorial force, but they also were not able to keep up with their logistics trail. Any professional soldier will tell you that at this level of warfare, if you forget logistics, you will lose. And the logistics plan from the very beginning, many people have said, me included, is it will not be able to keep up with those various avenues of approaches. Russia's uh, operation was being conducted along, if you, if you go around the curve of Ukraine, that's probably about a 1,400-mile front. That requires unbelievable amounts of resupply of food, fuel, ammunition, and medical supplies. And all indicators are that Russia has not kept up with their operations. If they don't keep up logistically, the operation stalls. That's where we've come to. It's called, in the military terms, a culminating point of the offense. That means they have to rapidly go on the defense where they're not moving, they're not maneuvering, and they're being subjected to continued attacks by the Ukrainian forces, which are in something called an active defense, which means they're defending, but they're also going out and attacking in small units. And they have taken the brunt of this attack. Which in a way, as you're describing it, first of all, my immediate impression as you describe the logistics and the absence of the preparatory planning on this says to me this was a knee-jerk reaction as opposed to a strategized invasion, which, of course, we know there has been no justification yet stated um, that is actually a viable one. But the idea, it also occurs to me, 
that we've heard for many years about the might of the Russian military. Have, has the world really overestimated the ability of the Russian army and logistical strategizing as well? Have they overestimated that as well? And in doing so, has this been one of the reasons why the resistance from the Ukrainians has been so effective? In a word, yes. Uh, you know, as a guy who was in Europe for a very long time, for a big part of my career, 12 years out of 38 years in the military, we continue to get information about Russia's services, their command and control, their leadership styles. I visited Russia at least four or five times. And in each one of those visits, uh, I would write reports afterwards saying these are the things I saw and they are not 10 feet tall. There are some problems with not only their equipment, uh, massive problems with their equipment, bad news in terms of their doctrine, the way they conducted war, how their equipment and their force didn't meet their doctrinal approach, how their leadership at both the senior and the junior levels were terrible, and how the training overall of the force was poor. All of those things added up to me as a commander in Europe that these Russians are not all that good. But having said all that, they do have 6,000 nuclear weapons, more than half of the nuclear weapons in the world, about 2,000 of them are considered tactical nuclear weapons, are small yield nuclear weapons. So that kind of size of a force with a backing of nuclear weapons, you know, that kind of quantity has a quality all of its own when you're talking about a player on the world stage. You know, I, I'm wondering in particular, for many people who are watching, and we're of course focusing on the destruction in different areas, and obviously Mariupol is one. Why Mariupol? Why is the strategy to continue to bombard and destroy Mariupol? <clears throat> Mariupol, excuse me. Why is everyone focused on that, in particular if you're the Russian military? Help explain the context of why this is such a strategic um, location for the Russians. Well, operations or tactics, the things that soldiers and commanders do in the field, are linked to the strategy of the politicians. In this case, the strategy of Mr. Putin was, first of all, to subjugate Ukraine. He knew he could do that, and, and I'm glad you've got the map up now, because Mariupol connects, it's halfway between Crimea, which the Russians have naval forces in, and the Donbass region of Luhansk and Donetsk, which is that shaded area to the right. If you go further to the west, you also see Odessa. It has always been Putin's desire to have the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov considered as a Russian lake. He wanted to control those ports across the board. If you control those ports, you landlock the rest of Ukraine, and that's part of the subjugation. Mariupol is important for two reasons, Laura. First of all, going to the east and connecting with the Donbass. But if you go north of Mariupol, there's another Russian city called Dnipro. And going north from Mariupol, coming south from Kharkiv, you can encircle the Donbass region where the Russians believed most of the Ukrainian army was because they've been fighting there for the last six years. That's called a battle of annihilation. When you have two sides coming from different directions and encircling the enemy force, you basically cause them to surrender. That didn't happen because the Russians did not apply as much force the Ukrainians were fighting for their lives in their country, and they just can't connect those two wings coming from the south and the north. So Mariupol then becomes, let's destroy it. Let's terrorize the citizens. Let's cause chaos. Let's cause the Ukrainian army to look in two places, fighting us and defending their citizenry. Wow. So th th it's, it's a very complex plan, and they certainly didn't have the ability to execute it. 
General Hartling, the right person to speak with you about this. I appreciate your time and for the explanation. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Now, I remind everyone, Mariupol is a city of about 450,000 people. Look at the destruction we've been focusing on as well. Now, all options for families in Ukraine, they're all heartbreaking. On the one hand, you can stay, like this man in Kyiv, the side of an apartment building completely sheared off. He's left to search for anything that can be salvaged in what used to be a home. Or you do what millions now have done. You flee, taking just what you can carry. Our Miguel Marquez is in Bucharest with families facing a very uncertain future. Ludmila Zhidik, her two teen daughters, and her father arrived last night. Our beautiful parks, our beautiful square, she says, everything is ruined. From Kharkiv, a city punished by Russian artillery and rockets, a school teacher, Zhidik, has some savings but not much. Their three-day journey brought them to this shelter run by the city of Bucharest. I'm shocked war is possible in 2022, she says. Everything was good. I could walk with my friends. I love my home city. It was very difficult to leave. Sophia's sister says it's hard to believe their lives have been thrown into such enormous uncertainty. I really miss my house, my country, my city. And I hope that this war is uh, going to finish. Andrei Tesman, a furniture maker, had his own business. He's here with his wife, kids, in all a family of eight, and their chihuahua, Bruno. Do you know when you will go home? Big question. Big question. A friend sent video of what their home now looks like. This is your home. That is my home. Yes, it's, it's from the beginning. It's my room. Bedroom. Bedroom. No, it's my bedroom. Unlivable. The entire neighborhood destroyed by possibly a rocket or artillery fire. Nothing to go back to. At 60 years old, are you starting over again? I don't want to, he says. But I have to. His son is in Florida. The family has inquired about visas to travel to the U.S., but so far... We haven't tried to apply for visas, he says. His wife adds, My son sent several messages to embassies and to people in Washington, D.C. The message they got back? America does not accept refugees for now. The Biden administration looking for ways to speed up applications. For now, World Vision is helping these refugees and tens of thousands more in Romania alone, their needs deepening. The people that are coming now, this, these people really, really need help. And there are a lot of people, we were at the border and I was at the border and I talked to a lot of people that didn't have any money, any plan. Who's that? Mama. Yulia Muliarchuk and her eight-year-old son, David, named for David Beckham from Kiev, arrived two weeks ago. When you decided to leave, how long did you have to pack? Well, I had around uh, three hours. Three hours? Yes, yes, yes. A few bags, documents, and family photos. Who is this? It's me and my husband, 10 years ago. 
She calls her mother in Kyiv every morning. So it's like, hello, mom, are you okay? And we're talking, talking, she's saying, yes, it seems like it's, it's been quiet night. And then I'm speaking to my husband and my friends. It's like a full-time job. <laughs> Not a full-time job, but you, you, have, you have to be sure that everyone is okay because it's nothing for sure now, nothing. She wants to go home, but when? When do you think you can go home? <laughs> oh, only God knows when. Nobody knows. You know, Miguel, it's listening to these people talk about this, what's going on in the families, and as a parent, trying to hold your face and your spine straight so your children don't fear and don't worry must have just been unbelievable to experience. And for weeks now, you've been covering the expanding humanitarian crisis there. I mean, how is the population changing? It went from, obviously, a few hundred to now three million um, when you're talking about the people who are traveling, are you seeing a trend in terms of those who have chosen to leave now as opposed to before? The ones that are leaving now are leaving under fire. They're leaving because they have to. They, they're leaving because they have nowhere else to go. So they're showing up at the border at places like Romania and Poland and Hungary and everywhere else with very little money, little clothes, sometimes not even documents. Uh, and it may get worse. There are many more millions inside Ukraine that are internally displaced. And if the Russians continue to push into civilian areas using that indiscriminate force, there is expected to be another tidal wave of refugees in the weeks ahead. It, it could get as bad as it is. It could get much worse. Laura. Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. So one of the big questions is what exactly should... President Biden and what does NATO need to do? I mean, part of this is going to impact, of course, NATO member allies as well. So how do they adapt to the changing dynamic of this war? A former NATO ambassador and special envoy to Ukraine thinks it's very clear how far they should go and also where they shouldn't. And he joins me next. President Biden's been working the phones today before his extremely important trip to the NATO summit, and then, of course, on to Poland. Our senior White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, joins me tonight. Phil, I'm glad you're here. We've got the president speaking with the leaders of France and Germany and Italy and the U.K. today. What happened during that call? Laura, it was about an hour-long call, and you can really kind of frame it as the opening act of one of the most consequential diplomatic weeks of probably President Biden's life, certainly one of the most consequential diplomatic weeks a U.S. president has as it pertains to Europe in decades. And this meeting with the leaders of the four Western European powers was really a chance to coordinate, uh, share perspectives on what's going on. There was discussion about some of the siege uh, issues that the the Ukrainians have been dealing with that you were talking about earlier in the show, very specific discussions as well about Mariupol and what's been going on going on there, but also a chance to talk about what lies ahead, both in the meetings later this week, but also the expansive response when you look at what the Western Alliance has put together in terms of that response over the course of the last four weeks. It is at a scale, particularly on the sanctions side, that I don't think many White House officials thought was possible a couple of months ago. Now they're here. Putin is continuing to ramp up and escalate. What can be done from here to try and change that dynamic? That, more than anything else, is what leaders are trying to figure out right now, Laura. 
And I assume among those those discussions about the deliverables, one of the things our last um, block was talking about was obviously you've got an escalating humanitarian crisis. You know the refugee numbers, millions going into countries that include NATO member countries, and it's created a massive crisis. And the question will be, does the U.S. plan to admit Ukrainian refugees as well? It's something that's under discussion right now. White House officials are working through the process with an acknowledgement that not all of those millions of refugees that are departing Ukraine are necessarily going to want or need to stay in Eastern Europe or other parts of Europe. There's a possibility some will want to come to the United States. Now, there's a process that would have to be in place for that to occur. Officials are talking about Mm -hmm. trying to streamline that process or maybe minimize some of the red tape. But I think that's going to be a key point of discussion when President Biden arrives in Poland. Obviously, his first stop will be in Brussels for that Uh, extraordinary meeting of all 30 NATO member country leaders, then to meet with the European Commission, then a G7 meeting as well called by Germany. But then off to Poland, you talk to officials who have been in conversations with their Polish counterparts, and they recognize that there have been millions of refugees that have crossed the border into that country. The Polish people have been extraordinarily welcoming, uh, but they are over capacity at this point. There's no question about it. And the U.S. will have to step in, not just with dollars, but also with other assistance as well, Laura. A critical conversation and allies all around. Phil Mattingly, thank you. To better understand the stakes of this NATO meeting that we've been talking about, let me bring in the former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Kurt Volker. Ambassador, I'm glad you're here. It's nice to speak with you again. You know, right now, a lot is at stake. And of course, a lot of people are wondering about the escalating invasion, about the destruction that's happening. And at this very important meeting, what are you thinking might come of this discussion? Will there be actual deliverables that could be achieved in this discussion? Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And this is a critically important meeting, as you say. Um, And the issue here is not just what NATO does. It's what Putin listens to, what Putin hears out of this meeting. Obviously, the first step of all these NATO allies will be to reaffirm the commitment to collective self-defense. Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, any attack on one is an attack on all. That will be very clear. But what Putin will be listening for is, well, what does this mean about Ukraine? What is NATO prepared to do? What are they not prepared to do? And here, I think NATO needs to send some very serious messages to Putin, particularly about civilian casualties and about refraining from the use of any nuclear or chemical or biological weapons. And obviously, that's so important, not only because of the the tragedy that could occur, But I also wonder about the desperation we're seeing. As many on the ground have described, they're not fighting troops. They are attacking civilians, which says if he doesn't have the Russian military preparedness that obviously should have been there had he wanted to engage in this horrible, unjustified invasion, it it suggests that he was unprepared and therefore will be desperate going forward. If he is desperate, does that pose extraordinary security and, and risks to the civilians and other NATO countries as well? Um, It does, but I think there's one way to deal with that, which is to warn Putin that any use of nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons is unacceptable, that NATO stands for the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine, that we will not allow Ukraine to fail, and then also to provide as much support for the civilians as possible. As you indicated in your question, Russia's military invasion of Ukraine is failing. Uh, The ground forces are not moving. They've had massive defections, massive uh, equipment uh, destruction, uh, massive casualties. 
And so that's why they're resorting to these long-range, indiscriminate attacks on civilian populations. So we need to recognize that they're in a desperate situation. We can push back and help the civilians and then allow time for the sanctions to take effect, which ultimately should bring Putin to the table. Ambassador, what you describe, though, really falls under the umbrella of diplomacy, which, as you know, requires there to be rational parties on both sides who have a mutual decision or a mutual desire to have a shared result. We are thinking about this notion, if he is acting in desperation, if he's attacking civilians, our own president has spoken about him being a war criminal, what good would it do to warn him against the use of these chemical weapons or nuclear warfare? Obviously, there seems to be discussion about the red line. Have we passed the point of no return when it comes to Vladimir Putin, given that he has really balked up to this point in time at diplomatic efforts? Well, this is a question we can't ever know the answer to. Uh, is Putin crazy and will do any crazy thing? Or is he rational and acting aggressively? We just don't know. But Russia is a country, not just one person. There are military leaders, intelligence leaders, business leaders. And if we make clear the stakes for Russia, that Putin is driving his country into the ground, then either they will force him to confront facts or they may perhaps remove him. But we need to make those facts clear. We need to be able to create the pushback so that Russia sees the costs of its own actions and that Ukraine ultimately will survive and prevail. So our course direction is clear, even if we don't know exactly the state of Putin's mind. Ambassador Volker, it would be very interesting to see how to penetrate that propaganda and misinformation campaign within Russia to do exactly what you're talking about. A pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your expertise on this very important issue. Thank you so much. Now, domestically, to our huge story here at home. Historic confirmation hearings are now underway for the first black female Supreme Court nominee. What can we glean from today's opening statements on how senators will grill Judge Jackson tomorrow? That's ahead. We saw history today. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson sworn in for her Supreme Court confirmation hearings, the first black woman ever nominated. Here she is explaining her judicial philosophy. I have dedicated my career to ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. Let's bring in CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue for more on what happened today. Ariane, I mean, first of all, we know we got a bit of a preview today, as you well know, through opening statements, not only her own, but from the members of the Judiciary Committee who previewed in many respects where they intend to go with their questioning. There are about three main areas that are trying to seek to perhaps attack her. Tell us a little bit about what those areas might be. All right, absolutely. We did get a little bit of a roadmap here. And of course, it started uh, with the Republicans talking about her time serving as a public federal defender. Remember, that's one of the reasons President Biden uh, chose her. He really appreciated that background. But you heard a couple of the Republicans say, ask her about some of her clients. For instance, they asked her about the fact that at one point uh, she represented a terrorism uh, detainee at Guantanamo Bay. But she actually has responded to this in, in the past. 
past. And she basically said that at the time she became a public defender because she wanted to know more about the criminal justice system. Uh, last time she was on the Hill, less than a year ago, she said that the experience made her uh, a better judge. And she said when she was asked about her representation that she did what every lawyer does, and that is to try to vigorously defend her client to the best of her ability. Um, we didn't get too much, too many questions so far, too many statements so far about Trump policies or some of, uh, of his rulings. That's going to come tomorrow. But we also got a lot more from Republican uh, Josh Hawley, because remember, last week he caused sort of a firestorm. He sent out these tweets, and he basically believes that uh, in a handful of cases at a, as a judge, she was too lenient in her sentences for child porn offenders. He basically looked at that. He said he thought that there was a problem um, and there was a pattern there. Uh, but CNN did review on our own um, a few of those cases, and it looked much more like she was uh, in the mainstream as far as what other judges did. And that's because for those particular types of offenses, uh, the guidelines were considered outdated. So a lot of other judges followed suit uh, and did uh, basically what she did. And tonight, CNN has obtained a letter that some retired federal judges have just sent to the Hill. Uh, it'll be discussed tomorrow. And they basically bring up that same point. They say at the time, uh, those uh, guidelines for these particular offenses were outdated. A lot of judges looked at that and they said the way that she handled those cases uh, was a lot like many other federal judges were. And importantly, this letter was also signed by two Republican appointees. They're retired federal judges. But that'll, that'll give a lot of weight and that's sure to be a big topic of conversation tomorrow. Well, it ought to be. I mean, the idea here that she's being questioned on her decisions to depart from the guidelines to average people thinking about this who are legal laymen, they may think, oh, these are set in stone. One can never depart. But the letter you speak about is about how judges have looked at this and said, hey, thematically over time, there has been some variation. It's not necessarily what Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, has been speaking about. And it really come to the defense of the judicial bench in many respects. Right, Ariane, about the decision to sometimes depart. What's behind that decision, though, because they didn't just say blanketly, you can always depart either upwardly or downwardly. It's more nuanced in a case like this. Why was it out of date, they, they believe? So it was particularly to these offenses, and it's for offenders um, who didn't uh, produce the materials or send the materials. So it's just people who were reading them, and that's where the dichotomy was. And even though uh, we have this letter, you saw Hawley today and a couple of other of the conservatives uh, on, that, uh, uh, on that panel, they are not going to let this go. They are going to press her about it tomorrow. But the, the danger there is here is a candidate who really has a firm grasp of the criminal justice system all around. She was on the Sentencing Commission. She served as this federal public defender. Uh, she's a judge. And that will really showcase the depth of her knowledge and also the fact that nobody who's sitting on the Supreme Court right now has such a deep understanding of the intricacies of the federal system. So that will likely come out, too. In fact, the only person with the same sentencing commission experience is her prior judge that she clerked for, Justice Breyer, who, of course, is going to be retiring, opening that seat. Ariane DeVogue, thank you for your time and your great reporting. And I mentioned, of course, one of the reasons perhaps she's so well-versed in this process, this is her fourth time now yeah. appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Very important to note. Thank you. And we mentioned Republican Senator Josh Hawley. Well, he says he's not interested in playing gotcha 
tomorrow with Judge Jackson. But as we discussed, he's already signaling that he might try anyway. And we're going to dig into what day two will bring next. So today were the opening statements, and the senators of the Judiciary Committee start questioning Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson beginning tomorrow. Republicans seem to preview their attacks on her record. In fact, here's part of Senator Marsha Blackburn's opening statement. I can only wonder, what's your hidden agenda? Is it to let violent criminals, cop killers, and child predators back to the streets? Is it to restrict parental rights and expand government's reach into our schools and our private family decisions? Is it to support the radical left's attempt to pack the Supreme Court? You have praised the 1619 Project, which argues the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country. i got to say, it must have been difficult for her to sit there for so many hours and hear what was being said in the accusations. That's just a preview, by the way. Danielle Holly Walker's name was floated as a possible Supreme Court candidate. You know, she's the dean of the Howard University School of Law, and she joins me now. Dean, I'm glad that you're here. I have to ask you your initial reactions to what you're seeing, because there is this overall theme, and and, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn seemed to have a bit of a kitchen sink argument to suggest that everything that is in the national zeitgeist is somehow falling on the shoulders of a hidden agenda of the judge. What was your impression of the line of opening statements that came today? Lord, thank you so much for having me this evening on this first day of this historic confirmation um, hearings. I think we heard a little bit of everything. And from the Democrats, of course, we heard about the historic nature of the nomination, the breadth of Judge Jackson's experience. And from the Republicans, I think what we're seeing is that this is really an opportunity to get across national talking points, right? This is one of the few times where people are really tuning in to the Judiciary Committee. So as you just heard with Senator Blackburn, you're going to hear a little bit of everything from critical race theory to even Senator Cotton talking about a wave of violent crime, uh, to all kinds of things that really don't have to do with Judge Jackson's qualifications, but are opportunities for senators to really uh, show what's on their agenda. And in part, this talking point about being soft on crime, there's a political analogy being made across the country about so-called blue cities and blue states and the rising crime rates and pointing directions to who might actually be the cause of it. But this notion of soft on crime, I'm a former federal prosecutor, and I can tell you that the the federal public defenders, they were not soft on crime. They were very hard on injustice, which, of course, you want a judge to actually be. And both prosecutors and defense counsel are aware that the people of the United States has to include the defendant and their rights as well. Right? You couldn't have a situation, you know that you're dean of a law school, where if the only criteria for being soft on crime was to be invested in the rights of a particular person with the weight of the law against them, then everyone would actually be soft on crime, including prosecutors, right? That's absolutely correct. I think it is a terrible line of attack to talk about her record as a public defender, because we know that to be a public defender, you have to be deeply committed to the rule of law. There are so many constitutional rights that we all have to the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment that could not 
be taken seriously without and could not be vindicated at all without public defenders. And I think Judge Jackson's deep commitment to the rule of law is exactly what we'll see on display when she has the opportunity to talk about her record and especially her record in the Sentencing Commission and her incredible amount of years as a judge, almost nine years of experience as both a trial judge and also an appellate judge. And that breadth of experience is very important, the policy front and, of course, the trial judge experience, but also the idea of her on the Sentencing Commission. And as I note, the sentences that she has handed out involving cases involving child predators has been a huge topic of discussion. And I wonder what you make of this notion of different retired judges now coming out to suggest that, well, the idea of departing from a sentencing guideline, which we, which we collectively thought was outdated, is not an indication that the person is not a viable judicial candidate. It's quite the contrary. What did you make of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that this nominee, that Judge Jackson, has been endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. She is an expert in sentencing, and I think we will see that expertise on display when she finally has a chance to answer some of these talking points that we heard today. Um, in the last segment, when you were talking about downward departures and upward departures, I think the notion that she has a very firm handle on fairness and justice in sentencing, and that there are wide spans of these questions, including questions that are very difficult, like possession of child pornography versus producing and distribution of child pornography. And those kinds of nuances are exactly what we want our Supreme Court justices to have. And I think Judge Jackson will show tomorrow when she has the opportunity to answer those questions that all of what she's done is extremely fair. And also it's important from what these former judges said is right in the median of what federal judges do. There's nothing unusual about her record. She has outstanding experience and has uh, done an excellent job from having that well-qualified rating by the ABA. Well, I look forward to hearing her, and hopefully she will have the meaningful opportunity to be heard, the kind of due process she attempted to guarantee for her clients, which, as you know, is so fundamental to our Constitution. Dean Danielle Holly Walker, thank you so much. Nice speaking with you. Thanks, Laura. Great to be on. We'll turn back to Ukraine and hope amid the humanitarian crisis. One family taking in, get this, 46 refugees why they didn't wait a moment to become a lifeline to so many innocent people. Next. One family in Poland has taken in 46 Ukrainian refugees. Here's Ed Lavendera. The children enjoy a game of hide and seek with a young boy hiding in the corner. But they're not siblings. They're new friends, brought together by war and the goodwill of Yaroslav Shiontitsky and his wife, Malgozhata. They opened their home to this Ukrainian family who escaped the war zone less than a week ago. When did you decide to help Ukrainian refugees? Mm, when the first bomb uh, go down. So. Since the war started, the Shiontitsky family has taken in 46 people. This truck driver, who recently recovered from cancer, says helping Ukrainian refugees is something he has to do. Why have you opened up your house to so many people? Because we should. It's, it's in Polish tradition, I think, to, to open our hearts, to open our homes for someone who is in need. 
and he's quick to think of the little things that make his guests feel at home. Yulia Grishko is in Poland with her seven-year-old son, four-month-old baby, along with her elderly parents. Today is her birthday. Blue and yellow. She wanted us to see the gifts she received from her hosts, blue and yellow flowers, Ukraine's national colors. Yulia and her family escaped from the eastern Ukrainian city of Dnipro last week. The fighting has intensified around their hometown. So uh, on March 13th at 5.30 in the morning, a Russian fighter jet flew over your home. What were you thinking in that moment? She says, this was the turning point. I realized that I could no longer endure it. At that moment, I thought I had to save my children. Yulia is a police officer at home. She was on maternity leave when the war started. Now it's up to her to figure out what to do next as the war drags on. But she says her heart is in Ukraine with the family she left behind. My heart stayed at home, she says. I'm scared for my relatives. But thank God I'm in a warm place surrounded by kindness and have inner peace. The, this family here in Poland, will you always consider them part of your family? Yes, she says, they have already become part of our family. On this night, far from home, Yulia was treated to a birthday cake surprise and a lovely version of the song Stola, the traditional Polish birthday song. Yulia tells us her only wish is for peace and the end of war so her family can return home. Ed Lavendera, Szymyszyl, Poland. We'll be right back. Don Lemon Tonight, live from Ukraine, starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.